Good morning. As uh, Adam mentioned, my name is Jason Beaver, and I'm our student pastor here. Sorry I didn't uh, do a little dance for you. The music's not as good as the last few ones. Uh, if some, if some of you will get a reference to that. Rich may have, may not have danced last week. Anyways, um, <clears throat> now you know. But I'm excited for the opportunity to uh, introduce our new series. Um, it's a series called Miracles. And right away, that already in a room this size begins to, well, maybe distance ourselves or distance each other because some of us, of us in here, we do believe in miracles, and some of us in here, we're not quite sure what we believe um, about miracles. And so this morning, um, in starting this series, we're going to look at the miracles that uh, John records in his gospel. There are seven that we are going to look at over the next seven weeks as we approach Easter and celebrate the, the greatest miracle of all, and that's Jesus uh, rising from the grave. And so in that, we're going to see, as Adam mentioned today, we're going to talk about when Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding feast. We're going to see he heals an official son. He, he cures a paralyzed man. He creates food for thousands of people. Uh, he walks on water. He gives sight to the blind. And he raises a man who's been dead for a few days. Um, these are the accounts of the miracles that John himself, a disciple of Jesus, one who at times may be arrogant, arrogantly refers to himself as the beloved of Jesus, which I find humorous. Um, but he was a witness to these accounts. And he says that these seven miracles um, are signs for us that point to something greater. That it's not just the act of the miracle and the, the physical that is being taken care of, uh, but there's a spiritual element there as well that takes us deeper when we look past just what we read in these words. And we begin to examine uh, these words and to see what can happen. Because there's two different ways to approach Scripture. Uh, both are beneficial for us. Uh, reading Scripture in general is very important as a regular part of our everyday lives. To understand who God is and what His Word says. Uh, but to take that further and to reflect on Scripture. Uh, to dive in and to look at even be, be beyond the surface. Um, that's where we can see some true things that maybe we've never pieced together before. And today, we're, that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to uh, get past just the, the surface level and dive a little deeper and, and to reflect on these words of this miracle that was performed at a wedding in Cana. But before we do that, um, I want us to, to spend a few minutes just talking about miracles in general. Because as I said, th there is this, this tension that we face. Whether we believe in them, whether we're unsure or absolutely we don't uh, believe in miracles and that they happen today. Uh, and I, at times, find myself in, in one of those boats. Um, at times in my life, I, I would say, yes, this thing that happened, uh, my daughter, who is now three years old, uh, who was born at uh, 28 weeks, um, she's a miracle to me. Um, the way that she has no health complications, where she's at developmentally, uh, the joy and the smiles that she brings to my face, like that is, that's my little miracle uh, girl. Um, and, I ex and I have that experience. Um, but at times, too, I, I hear other things or I've, I've read other things and I'm just, my skepticism steps in. I'm like, ah, I don't know if I believe that. And part of that is because I don't have a relationship with the person who experienced that. See, all of these accounts that we're going to look at, uh, the disciples, John, a disciple of Jesus, was an eyewitness account to these events. Um, and so this is his experience that he put on paper for us. But uh, Lee Strobel, uh, he's, he's an author. He wrote a book a few 
quite a few years ago now, uh, called The Case for Christ. And in it, he examined, uh, is this Jesus character real? Um, and so he took a, a scientific a national study approach, uh, interviewed a lot of different people. He himself didn't believe and came to believe uh, in this research. And last year, he released a book called The Case for Miracles. And so in this, he does the same approach he did in that book uh, to where he did a national survey, conducted uh, interviews to see if this is true. Do miracles still happen today? And uh, some of the results I wanted to share with you this morning, he says, in general, half of the U.S. adults, uh, 51% said they believe the miracles of the Bible happen as they are described. Uh, so the, the seven that we're going to look at, that word for word, what Jesus did, it's exactly how it happened. Uh, 51% believe that to be true. Asked whether miracles are possible today, uh, two out of three Americans, 67% said yes, with only 15% saying no. Um, which, is, which is huge to think that two out of three Americans believe miracles still happen today. Um, miracles give us a, a sense of hope. They help us understand things that we can't understand. Uh, and they point us to something or someone uh, greater. And for us, that's Jesus. And then nearly two out of uh, five U.S. adults, so 38% uh, of Americans, said that God has performed at least one miracle for them personally. And so, uh, if you take our population in America, that's 90, about 94 million people believe that God has performed in a miracle uh, for them. And so I don't know where you're at in that camp and, what, and wh how you wrestle with that tension or what you believe. But I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you and I want to invite you as we dive into these ne uh, next seven weeks uh, to come with an open mind, as Adam has mentioned, uh, that we would uh, examine uh, these signs, these miracles that John writes about and see how they can be beneficial for our faith just as they were beneficial for the people who experienced them firsthand. And so, because the reality is, with these miracles, we're left with a question. Do I believe? Uh, do I believe the eyewitness account of what someone said had happened? And so this morning as we dive into this text, um, John uses the word miracle uh, that, uh, as signs. Uh, the word could also be translated signs. And so for John's gospel, uh, he describes the miracles as signs. Signs are meant to direct us to something. Um, in a few weeks, I'm going to be uh, leaving on a, a Friday afternoon and driving to Florida uh, to go to a conference, but then also spend a few days at Disney with my family over spring break. And so uh, I have to pay attention to some road signs if I want to get to where I'm going. I don't have that trip memorized. Uh, I'm not going to get on 71 North and, and head towards Cleveland to get to Florida. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so I need to pay attention to some of the signs uh, around me. And the same is true for these signs that we're going to look at. Um, because we often focus on the physical miracle and stop there. But the physical miracle is only a sign pointing us to something of even more importance. And John, at the end of his gospel, uh, he, he gives us a clue of what that is. And so in, in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, it says, Jesus performed many other signs, and in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. This book that John is referring to is not the Bible as a whole, it's just his document, his account, his eyewitness experience of his time with Jesus. It says, there's many other things that I, I could have wrote about, but... But these 
are written, the seven that are mentioned that are written, they are there so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, these seven miracles, these seven signs that we're going to look at, all have one point and one focus, uh, to point us to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, that we may have belief and faith in him. And so my prayer for us is that that is what would happen, that we would see these miracles that not were only beneficial uh, for them who experience them firsthand, but are also still over 2,000 years later beneficial for us us and helping us see and understand the person of Jesus and taking our faith further than where it was before. See, these seven signs are, uh, these, these seven miracles are seven signs, and each sign points us straight to Jesus. Will you pray with me as we get ready to, to dive into this first miracle? Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning uh, to jump into your word and, and to get past just the surface and taking it at face value, but to dig deep and to reflect on, on what your word says. Um, and more importantly, the signs that it points to, <laughs> and it points to your son as the Messiah and what that means for us. And so, Father, as we dive in this morning and we look at this first miracle that Jesus performed, um, let us have an open mind and let us wrestle with this question in the back of our minds is, do I believe? Do I believe what Jesus did for this individual and this couple that he'll do for me? And do I believe that this sign points to something greater than what's at the surface? So, Father, we come this morning um, asking you to speak to us and guide us. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to John chapter 2. Um, if you have a, a, a smartphone or a tablet, you could uh, use the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, you can find under events. You can find our church, and, and everything would be there as well. Um, and so in John chapter 2, uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 11. But we're going to kind of break it into three sections. Um, and so we're going to stop uh, certain moments because we're going to see uh, this played out in three different ways. So first, we're going to identify the problem. Uh, we're going to look at the miracle. And then we're going to see the response. And so the problem uh, begins to arise in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does this have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the ser uh, servants. And so right away, we get kind of an in insight into to what's happening. Um, there's a, a third day of a wedding feast that Jesus' mother Mary and Jesus have been invited to. Um, so this kind of lets us in on maybe whose wedding it was. Uh, more likely than not, it was a, a close relative or a close friend. Uh, where Jesus grew up in Nazareth was not far from Cana, and so um, it, it would have been very easy to have relatives in that area and just to, uh, to be invited to that wedding, and it would make sense why he was there. Uh, Jesus' disciples were there because Jesus was there. Um, this is seven days into Jesus' uh, ministry. And so he's just recently uh, called his disciples to come and follow him. Uh, and we saw and we see in Matthew chapter 4, 
Jesus calls the disciples, and they, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets, they drop, they leave their profession, everything that they've known and worked for, learning their, their father's trade, uh, they leave it all aside and to begin to follow Jesus. And so this uh, lets us know that they had a belief in him. Uh, they recognized him as a rabbi. Jesus, from a very young age, would have been teaching in the, in the synagogues. We see at age 12, he, he begins to do that. Um, and so that people were amazed by his teachings and his understanding of the word of God. And so this began to set him apart and build a reputation. And so when Jesus invites these men to come follow him, they drop everything and immediately do. Um, and so they were there with him at the wedding at we as well. Uh, weddings, as we know, right, uh, can be exciting and stressful at the same time. <laughs> Um, Mandy and I are going on nine years uh, of marriage, and um, I don't really remember putting much into it, because I asked Mandy, I was like, help me write this part of my message, because <laughs> I was like, what did I help you with, uh, with when it comes to planning our wedding? Um, and when I look back on it, I like, you know, typical, is that I think I did more than I actually did. Um, so I, I bought some cardstock and stuff, and I took it to uh, Kinko's, and they printed the invitations, <laughs> and then I made our programs. Uh, I printed those and cut them out and tied them together or whatever. Um, but that's really about all I did. I didn't do much else. The only other thing I had to do was uh, make sure I had enough uh, people to stand on stage with me because Mandy had a lot, a lot of bridesmaids. So I may have to pay somebody. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but that's really all I had to do. Um, and so in society today, we still see the, the stress that can go into it. Uh, we have TV shows about uh, bridezillas and all of these things and the, the chaos and the tension that it can bring. Uh, but we still don't understand what it would have been like for a first century Jewish wedding. Um, there, the, the preparation, the planning was so much more. Um, so the, the groom would come, and there usually was an arranged marriage, would, would uh, come, meet his bride, uh, give a, a, a purchase for his bride, and then he would go off for the next year and continue to make preparations and planning, building a house, getting things ready, putting everything in order to show uh, not only the, the bride's father, but everyone else that he could uh, take care of his soon-to-be bride. Uh, and then they would have this, the moments, they would have everything, and it would lead up to ending in this marriage feast, this celebration, uh, where sometimes uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people would come, uh, depending on your relatives and how close or whole cities or villages would be invited. And so uh, these feasts would last somewhere between a few days uh, up to a week. And scripture tells us that this is the third day of this feast, so we're going to assume it's about seven days. And Mary um, is there, and she re realizes, and somehow it comes to her attention, uh, that they are about to run out of wine on the third day of a seven-day wedding feast. Um, this is where the problem arises. Uh, because in the first century, Jewish weddings, uh, as I said, were steeped in tradition and ritual. Um, and so for someone to miscalculate uh, their, uh, how many guests they would have and and how much they would drink, um, would bring great humiliation for the bride and the groom. Um, so we've all thrown parties at times where we've been invited to parties. And maybe we've been to a party or you've thrown a party to where uh, you did run out of something. And uh, for us, it's just a little, oh, I'm sorry, I'll make it up to you next time. Uh, in that culture, uh, it would have been looked at with uh, a, a lot more humiliation and shame. 
See, the marriage would have been forever banded, or be branded a disgrace. The host family, uh, where the party's at, would have been shamed, and the newly married couple would carry a social stigma of shame with them the rest of their days, as would their children and their children's children. So this, this embarrassment of running out of, of some refreshments uh, would be the social stigma that would stay with them from generation to generation to generation. And so this is the problem uh, that we see happening. And Mary speaks up, and she wants Jesus to intervene. And here, of course, she has, you know, from the very beginning been told that this is the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, that you will give birth to him. And so she knows he could do something if he really wanted to. And maybe as a kid, you know, it accidentally came out. He did a miracle that we don't know about or, or something happened. But she knows he can intervene in some way. And so she speaks up. And Jesus' reply uh, to us seems rather harsh. Uh, but was far more polite in that culture. And his answer is rather cryptic, because he says this. He says, what does this have to do with me and you? My hour has not yet come. See, John's gospel, he'll often speak of this hour um, as the time to be crucified as an atoning sacrifice. And here, his reply means that if I start to do miracles, if I start here now, uh, it will be in effect announcing uh, that I am on route to the cross. That if Jesus begins to intervene in this, this way, uh, helping this couple save the risk of embarrassment to save face and shame, then I am proclaiming uh, my path and journey to the cross. And so there's a lot of significance there that we, sometimes we can overlook. Because running out of wine, right, is, is hardly a life or death situation. For us, I was, I was talking to my brother-in-law after the first service, and he, he told me to say this, and so I'm going to. Um, but, like, the most, em- this is my sister, actually. But my, the most embarrassing thing for us is if we have people over and we run out of toilet paper or something, you know? <laughs> like, that, that would, actually probably would be. But, but here, this is different for them, right? It's bringing them shame that will last upon generation upon generation and generation. Uh, Jesus isn't uh, healing someone physically who's in pain. But he intercedes with a miracle to solve the problem. God is interested in every aspect of your life. So what matters to you matters to him. To save the risk of embarrassment, to save face with those around you, uh, he wants to be involved if you'll allow him. So Jesus shows us that God moves in the ordinary parts of our lives to bring about the extraordinary, all in an effort uh, to build our faith in him. And so... We've identified the problem. We've ran out of wine physically. There's that problem. And then the emotional aspect, uh, the shame that could become uh, with the guests finding out. And so now on to the miracle. Verses 6 through 8 says, Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Uh, and so here, uh, when I've heard this before, or actually I haven't heard many sermons on this, this miracle, I've always been pictured just this maybe like magical party trick. All right, everybody's got a pitcher of water, automatically psh, turns red and it's wine. <laughs> uh, but this is not what's happening. Uh, at first glance, that how we could look at it, we could dismiss it. And many people have that they don't see this miracle as significant as the rest that we're going to look at uh, because it was just this practical thing that happened. But that's what happens when we look at the surface. 
when we begin to reflect and dig a little deeper, uh, we can see uh, some more uh, underlying truths here. Because Jesus' act of compassion uh, was to ensure that the wine would last for the rest of the wedding feast. But by a miracle, he turned the water into wine. Uh, but as I said, there's more that's going on. The six stone jars we could look at and dismiss. Uh, but there's huge significance for us uh, if we look at those six stone jars that are mentioned. Because they contain clues to what the physical sign is directing us to. These were not just uh, regular drinking jars. Uh, they weren't just these pitchers of water uh, that people would have and, and drink freely from. Uh, these were the jars that were used for Jewish purification. In, in Levitical law, there were a lot of uh, demands and, set and rules that had been set up, and the Pharisees and the rabbis at this time had certain ways that you could enter into the presence of God, enter into uh, a marriage uh, feast because of the covenant that's been made before God, and that you had to present yourself as clean and holy. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, rituals uh, that would go into effect. And these Jew Jewish purification jars um, would have been present right in center um, where this feast was happening. Because as individuals would have walked in, the, uh, someone would have grabbed a, a amount of water, uh, poured them over your hands to signify uh, your washing away, your cleansingness, so that you could enter into this uh, place that has been ordained by God, um, this sacred place and this feast to be in the presence of not only this bride and groom and not to bring shame or guilt or anything upon them that has come as unclean, but also in front of God as well. And so these purification jars are there. Uh, and as the guests have arrived, they would each get that poured over their hands. So by filling these jars with water and then transforming them into wine, at a wedding, Jesus is giving us another sign, another clue. Because a wedding is a place where two separate people become one. Wedding is a place where two unrelated families uh, come together to find a place of unity and relationship. And a wedding is a place where friends of the bride and friends of the groom, who may have nothing in common, come together under one thing in common, and that's the bride and the groom, to bring that connection. And so by transforming water into wine, using purification jars, Jesus was transforming the ritual that these stone jars represented. A ritual that had previously been about segregation and separation, who's in and who's out. A, a ritual about being clean or unclean. Uh, and a ritual about that has been created in an us versus them mentality. And something that also notice about these jars is that these jars were already empty. There wasn't water already in them. Uh, they were already empty. And Jesus has the, the servants fill the jars to the brim so that nothing else could be added. Uh, it couldn't look like anything else was added to change this into wine or whatnot. Um, and he's beginning to show us this picture where we see throughout Scripture uh, this idea of a, a new covenant that is coming into a place. That you can't put uh, old wine into new wineskins without it being tainted. Or you can't put new wine into old wineskins without it bursting at its seams because it can't hold it. Jesus would then, uh, at the end of his time on this route to the cross, starting at this miracle at Cana that set him on this journey, would have a meal at Passover with his disciples. He would take a piece of bread and he would break it and he would say, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he would take a cup of wine and he would say, this is my blood which has been poured out for you. This new covenant that you uh, can have life now. 
And so we see there's more to the picture than just the story at face value. That Jesus is beginning not only to feel, uh, show us the miracle of this physical miracle of turning water into wine, but foreshadowing and heading to the greatest miracle of all times. To where he will die on a cross for you and me, raised to life so that we can have a relationship with him. So then we are left with the response. In John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says, when the head waiter tasted the water, and after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Uh, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he called the groom, and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, and when people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So there's a few people who are mentioned here. We have the head waiter. He's probably he's the, the, the person who is the host. Um, and so it's kind of on his property. He knows what's going on. Um, he gets this. He tastes it. And he realizes, okay, where did this come from? <laughs> I, I know this has not been here before. This is the best that we, we've had. And so he calls the groom over. Uh, and the groom, uh, not knowing, unannounced to him what, what has happened. Um, he doesn't know. Jesus has performed this miracle. Um, and then you have this head waiter tell the groom, what have you done? Like, you, you've gone against what's been normal tradition. Normal tradition would be that you would give the best first. And once everybody is, is drinking freely, then they wouldn't be able to tell <laughs> what the rest of it is. But, but you have saved the best for last. And he... Um, just kind of accepts it, like, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> and it starts this new way of thinking. Be- because for him and for, for us, Jesus will all ultimately be that greatest gift at the end, the atoning sacrifice to know where, no more do we have to do these purification rituals or these cleansings or uncleans, that he would die a death that we deserve and purify us once and for all. And all we have to do is accept it and just take it because he has given that for us. Then we see at the end uh, his disciples who are witnessing this uh, there. It says he revealed his glories and the disciples uh, believed in him. The disciples that I mentioned, they already kind of had this faith in him. They believed in who he was because they dropped everything to follow him as a teacher, as a rabbi, to learn from him. But here they begin to see uh, not only his rabbinic authority be put into place, but also his messianic authority, uh, the Messiah, come into existence. And so their faith was strengthened uh, by being these eyewitness accounts of these miracles, uh, starting here at at a wedding in Cana. And so when John tells the story of the wedding and where Jesus performs this first miracle, um, it supposed to help us and point us to believe in Jesus and the Father who sent him. And if we already do, um, it's to strengthen our faith. See, Mark Batterson, he wrote a book called The, uh, the Grave Robber, and it's uh, based off of the Gospel of John and these seven miracles. And in it, he says this, and it's on your bulletin, it says, uh, or your notes, don't seek miracles, follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus long enough and far enough, you'll eventually find yourself in the middle of of some miracles. 
a lot of times in life when things are getting overwhelmed and we need that miracle, uh, we can focus a lot on the miracle. Uh, we, we want the, the practicality, practicality to come into existence, so we focus on hoping that comes, but we miss out on the one who can bring the miracle. And our focus and our attention shifts strictly to the miracle and not to the person who can and is the miracle maker. And so he reminds us the miracles point to something. They point to someone. They point to Jesus. And that our faith, if we're continuing to follow Jesus and we're focusing on him, will continue to be strengthened and built upon. And eventually we'll see some miracles happen in and around our lives. We'll be eyewitness accounts to the things that God has done in and around our lives to strengthen our faith, but also to strengthen the faith of those around us. And so this morning we're left really with a question. And the question is, is do I believe? Do I believe who Jesus says that he is? Do I believe that this sign and this wedding and this miracle of turning water into a wine that started him on a journey that would eventually end on a cross for me and for you? Mike has, has said many times in this room that this is the most important question we can ask ourselves. Is who do I believe Jesus to be in my life? And it's not just a one-time question. It's not, yes, I believe and I'm done. It's a day-to-day question. Who do I believe Jesus to be? And do I allow his word and the works that he does in and allow my life to continue to strengthen that faith and that belief? As John says at the end of his gospel, for these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have uh, life in his name. And so this morning I'm going to leave you with that question. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity um, to dive into your word, uh, to look past the surface and to wrestle and to see um, something maybe we've never seen before. That this miracle wasn't just some off miracle to, to help this couple save embarrassment and shame, but it was pointing to the miracle of miracles. That it was pointing to you dying on the cross for each and every one of us, so that we could have a relationship with you. And so, Father, I don't know where everyone is at in this room, but as we dive into this series starting today, going to the next uh, six weeks and into Easter, help us wrestle with that question of if we believe. And if we do, let this series continue to build and strengthen our faith in you. And if we're not unsure, uh, Father, I pray that this series would show us the, the person of Jesus, the character of who your son is and longs to be in our lives, and that we then can make a decision of who we want him to be in our lives. We thank you, and we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.